right, amen. Uh, great to see you, church. Uh, anybody have anything going on in your life this past week? What a wild week for so many of us. Uh, and I'm one of those lucky people who never lost power, but there are those weeks that we just give God thanks for the little things in life, like AC and showers that work. And I don't want to make light of the last week. I know it was hard for a number of you. And I love to see how this church rallied around each other. And I'm sure there's some people who kind of fell through the cracks, but to see the way you took care of each other was such a testament to who you are. And I, I hope all of you are doing well. If not, please reach out to me or one of the leaders or one of your friends. And uh, just what a wild week. And now we turn a page and there's a new week, a week of church camp. And I know many of you are going out there. It's such a testament to this church, not just the number of campers who go, but the number of adults who take a week of vacation to go to church camp, to hang out with each other and to hang out with the next generation. So I want to, uh, you've had a couple of people who have encouraged you, but I encourage you to, to pray. Your prayers matter more than you may ever know. And I, I just want to invite you to pray some big, bold prayers for our kids. One of the big prayers I pray for almost any church camp, whether it's uh, one I'm speaking at uh, or when, when we go out to Rose of Sharon, is that, uh, is that our kids, our students, will not just fall in love with church camp, but that God will use church camp to help them fall in love with Jesus. Uh, this morning, I was, I was shocked during the second song when two of my longtime friends came in the room and gave me a hug. I was not expecting them in Memphis today. And I've told you before that I had a couple of prayer warriors, especially in my teenage years. And, and Liz and Cynthia, two people who prayed, they have probably prayed more prayers for me outside of family than anybody else, other than maybe my wife. And, and Liz and her husband, Chris, came in today. And Liz is one of my longtime prayer warriors. And I know there were times when I was a teenager that Liz was praying over me and her response to God was probably like, God, I don't know if you don't hear me, but I think this kid is getting worse, not better. And now, look, I am far from perfect, but 25 years later, there's, there's a little bit of fruit coming from my life, and I don't think I would be who I am today as your preacher without prayers that flowed from Liz over me. So, Liz, I cannot, my heart just blew up earlier when you walked in. I could not believe that you're, you're here today. So, Liz and Chris, I love you so much. Casey, will you give Liz a hug for me? Uh, appreciate that. And for the adults in the room, your prayers this week for our kids, they matter. Prayers Liz prayed over me years ago helped shape and form me to, into who I am today. I also heard uh, someone this morning, a minister, he preaches up in New York. He said a woman prayed in his church this morning and her prayer was thanking God for the week and thanking God for how we will celebrate on Tuesday and asking God that every family in her, in her neighborhood would run out of fireworks by 9 p.m. on Tuesday. <laughs> And there was something about the prayer of like she's being honest. And all of our dogs would say, amen, please, Lord Jesus, hear our prayer. All right, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. That's where we're going to be today. Luke chapter 20. We're in a series called Chorology. And I want to spend just a little time working through about seven verses. I want to lay four principles in front of you toward the end of this message. But will you pray with me? For God, I, I'm asking that the word, your word, will speak into our hearts today and that you'll open minds, you'll open hearts, that you will perform. God, we're not just going through motions. This morning, through everything we do, from the songs we sing, the prayers we pray, opening up the word together, how we engage each other around the table and, and commune with you, will you just shape and form our hearts into the image of Jesus. And God, there are seasons, there are times I need you to reveal the idols in my life that are keeping me from being fully devoted to Jesus. And there are times I need you to do that in a way that's very forceful. 
And there are times I need you to do that in a way that is very gentle. And God, sometimes I'm so hesitant to pray for you to have your way with us because I don't know what's going to happen. I just pray, God, this week for our students that you will have your way with them. And this morning in this space, that you will have your way with us. I pray, God, uh, that the words I speak over the next few minutes, that they will honor your heart, your nature, your character. And if I say anything that does not honor everything you are, may those words fall to the ground, be trampled by you, and not be remembered at all. But if I speak words that are true, may those words sink deep into our hearts and bear great fruit this week. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So it's said that there are uh, some traditions of baptism around the world today that go like this. That before somebody says yes to Christ, they say no to other things. So before there's a yes, there's a no. Now I want you to think about it, because in most of our context, and I hope and I pray this week at Rose of Sharon, there will be baptisms that will happen this week. And usually what we do in the baptism, and I think God honors this, it's perfectly fine, perfectly fine, but usually we ask, like, do you accept Jesus as the Lord of your life? Something like that. Do you commit your life from this day forward to Jesus? There are some traditions around the world that before they get to that question, that they uh, begin with something that they are resisting. So there are some traditions that it will begin like this. The, the person baptizing the, the, the other person will say something like, do you today, do you renounce Satan and all of his angels and all of his work and all of his services and in all of his pride? And which hopefully the response is, I do. And then that person will respond, do you unite yourself with Christ today? It's Romans chapter 6 language. And which hopefully the person responds with, I do. But before they say that I do to Christ, they say that I do to the things in their life that they're saying no to, that they're trying to resist. And there's something about that I think that is so powerful of how are we saying yes to Christ and no to the things that keep us from Christ. Like this is a daily commitment for us, right? Like how are we saying yes to Jesus today in deeper ways and what are the things in my life that I need to say no to? So here's how one person talks about baptism and I love this, listen to this. It says, baptism declares that God is in the business of bringing dead things back to life. So if you want in on God's business, you better prepare to follow God to all rock bottom, scorched earth, dead on arrival corners of this world, including those in your own heart, because that's where God works. That's where God gardens. Baptism reminds us that there's no ladder to holiness to climb, no self-improvement plan to follow. It's just death and resurrection over and over again, day after day, as God reaches down into our deepest graves and with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, rests us from our pride, our apathy, our fear, our prejudice, our anger, our hurt, and our despair. Amen? This is what our God does. So Martin Luther, the great reformer, he used to go into some really dark places in his life. And he's on the record saying that sometimes when you go into those dark places, he would just say this, Martin, be calm, you've been baptized. Like, Martin, just be calm, you've been baptized. And sometimes it's a great reminder. Sometimes it's the only reminder you need. Like, Josh, today, chill out just a little bit, remember you're baptized. In situations with other people where there may be tension, people say certain things to you, it's a good reminder in your head. Act in this moment like you have been baptized. There are sometimes I hear Christians say certain things, and my response to them is, you can't say that, you've been baptized. There's a yes that we say to Jesus. There's a no that we say to things in the world. So right now we're in this series called Choreology. 
And I want to talk, I've been talking about just the core of who we are, especially as we try to, or as we find ourselves navigating culture wars. And you may try to resist culture wars all you can. They're all around us. There are voices screaming. And how do we, how do we protect and grow and cultivate our core, like who we are in God? to prepare us for when we find ourselves in these wars. And a few statements I've just laid in front of you the last few weeks, that if we neglect our core, we lose our center, we lose our balance, we hurt our witness. And I don't want us, and not just Sycamore View, I just don't want the church, especially the church in the United States of America, I don't want us to confuse where our allegiance lies. I don't want us to spend valuable energy fighting the wrong fights. I don't want us to create enemies that are, enemies of, that are not enemies of God. And I don't want us to lose our witness. Now, I preach this series with great hope and great joy, not with cynicism and defeat. So as I'm thinking through this content, this isn't a, we've got to do better. If anything, I love being in a church that has taught me how people can come into a place to worship God with a lot of different convictions about things that are happening in the world, yet we can find our center in God. And I'm preaching this with great hope and faithfulness for who the church is and the witness the church has in the world. And I want people to believe that how we engage in culture matters. We can't just resist culture if we care about evangelism and we care about shining the light of God in the world and we care about raising up a next generation that wants to make a difference in the world. Like we have to help each other navigate all the craziness in the world. And we can do it. With God's help, we can do it. There's a sociologist who was at the University of uh, Virginia. His name was James Davison Hunter. And in 1991, he was doing some research. And his research was based on 1980s and early 1990s on how people were engaging certain issues. So he's doing all this research. Now, I know some of you, you hear 1980s and early 90s, and you think that wasn't too long ago. And some of you in the room, you're like 1980s and 1990s, and you're like, were y'all on the Mayflower back then? Like, was a Pony Express around? Like, it seems like eternity so long ago. But think of those of you who can remember, like 1980s and early 1990s, like different issues that were going on. Right? I mean, whether it was Russia or Germany or things in the Middle East. And so James Davison Hunter was doing research on how people were engaging issues. And here's a phrase he heard pop up over and over and over again. When it comes to issues happening in the United States, it feels like war. So in 1991 is when he first coined the phrase culture war. That that's what it felt like. As people were engaging political, social, cultural issues, it felt like war. So sometimes what we do is we enter into culture wars or we find culture wars. And for some people, it's all about trying to win them and hopefully not lose them. And what I'm encouraging the church to do is this, is that if you're passionate about things and it feels like you're, uh, the issue you're passionate about, there is a loss. Do you believe that the kingdom of God can still advance? Right, that the kingdom of God is not waiting on people to figure out all the social, cultural, political issues in order to advance in the world. The kingdom of God keeps moving. So we've got to make sure, first and foremost, we're a part of a kingdom agenda before we're a part of any other kind of agenda. And I want to encourage people, be passionate about issues. Care about it. Invest in the world. Invest in culture but be driven not just by biblical principles, but by principles you see lived out in Jesus. 
So here are the seven principles I'm walking us through. I've done a few of these. Today I'm going to be on number four. The next few weeks we're going to work through number five, six, and seven. And all seven of these principles are to help us navigate all the different cancel culture, culture wars that's all around us and how we, how we hold on to our core, how we keep our center. And I put all of them up on one slide. Just, and I know that small, it's, it's hard for you to see all of them. But the first one is this. And the first one, I think, sets the foundation for all the others. I will daily confess that Jesus is the Lord of my life and nothing else is. Number two through four is about your inner life. Number two, I will create and honor regular spiritual practices that remind me of my devotion to Jesus. Number three, I will choose to become a better listener to God and other people. Number four, I will resist to allow any media outlet to become the primary way I think about culture and the world. Number five, I will strive to become a peacemaker, not just a peacekeeper, but a peacemaker. Number six, I will practice hospitality as a way to learn, grow, and invest in other people. And number seven, I will choose to regularly serve others. So hopefully your Bible is open to Luke chapter 20. I want you to see how Jesus does this in Luke chapter 20. In Luke 20, there are seven verses beginning in verse 20, and here's how it goes. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. Did you get all that that's happening? So they're trying to trap Jesus. So they send people whose motives are, we've got to try to ask the right question to trap Jesus in something he says. They hope to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies question him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And here's the question, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius whose image and inscriptions on it. Caesar's, they reply. And he said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. So I want you to notice the language of trapped and deceit. It's like interrogation because to remove Jesus, they had to trap Jesus and they knew it. So they send spies who were pretending to be honest. So I want you to notice what happens. They begin by affirming some things that are true. Did you notice that? They begin by affirming a few things that are true. It's like they wanted just enough truth to get people, especially Jesus, to lean in and then twist it to fulfill their own purposes. This is what happens around us all the time is that there are voices that want to speak just enough truth to get you to lean in and then twist the truth to fulfill whatever purposes are the intentions of the heart. And you don't just see this in politics. Like you see this in any form of leadership. I need to be held accountable that I don't do this, that I don't ever stand up in front of you and want to speak truth but then twist it to try to fulfill whatever some agenda I may have is. Here's what they were trying to do with Jesus. And then they, they ask him a question in which any way Jesus answers it, he's going to alienate 50% of the people. So they ask him, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? If Jesus says, no, it's not right to pay taxes to Caesar, then Rome's going to be all over him. If Jesus says, uh, or, or no, then if he says no, the Jews are going to be on his side. If he says yes, we need to pay it then the Roman Empire, they're going to be against him. So they're trying to ask a question just to trick him. 
Any way he answers, he's going to alienate people. And they're hoping that he will say that, hey, no, we don't need to pay taxes because then the Jews are off the hook. And the Romans will really appreciate the Jews for taking out, taking care of somebody who has stood up against Rome. And the way they do this with Jesus is they decide to talk about taxes because when anybody brings up a conversation about taxes, none of us are at our best. Am I right? Like very few people in this room, and I know there are a few of you who are there, like very few of you like to talk about taxes. Let's talk to him about taxes, and then we may get him, like, we may get him to say something that he knows he, he probably shouldn't say. Now, Josephus, who was a historian in the first century culture, Josephus tells a story that just a few years before this story happened, there was a guy named Judas of Galilee. And Judas the Galilean, what he did is he was teaching and he was leading this revolt, trying to teach all the Jews, trying to tell all the Jews that if you pay taxes to Caesar, it's treason against God. So there was this thinking among the Jewish people that when we pay taxes to Caesar, like this is treason, this goes against God. So they asked Jesus about taxes. And Jesus responds with, show me a coin. They ask about taxes. Jesus decides to play show and tell. And he asked for a denarii, a denarius. And I want you to see just on the screen, if you'll show this real quick. Here's a screen of what a denarius would have looked like. They're asking about taxes. Jesus asked for a denarius. He, asked, he wants to hold it. He wants to show them. And all of the Jews would have known what was on that coin. It's the face of Tiberius. And written on that coin was Tiberius Caesar. Son of the divine, son of God. So Jesus is showing them a coin, knowing who he is, and knowing what the face on that coin represents. And that often when Jews would pay, most likely in this case, they're paying poll taxes. Every time they pay them, they are reminded of who is in control and who has the power and don't upset the Roman Empire. And now Jesus shows them the coin. And then Jesus responds brilliantly with Jesus says, hey, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. I want you to notice this about Jesus. Jesus lived from a centered place. So when there were moments when people were trying to shake him, like get him off his, off his like they were trying to get him off his game, they couldn't do it. And I don't think the reason they couldn't do it is because Jesus was, just because he was fully God. I mean, I believe and I will teach to the day I die. Jesus is fully God, fully human. But Jesus had this center place. Jesus practiced the presence of God. Jesus went to be with his Father. He spent time with his Father, which prepared him for moments like this that they couldn't shake him. Time with God prepares you for those moments of tension where you cannot be shaken. For Jesus, he wasn't interested in the political agenda of Rome. He was interested in people honoring the God they claimed to know. He didn't challenge whether taxes should be paid to a pagan government or not. He did challenge the intent of the heart. And for Jesus, it's almost like what he is saying is, you honor the government. You honor, whoever the government is over you, you honor them. But you worship and give allegiance to God and God alone. And don't ever confuse the two. Did you notice when they came to Jesus, they asked an either-or question? That's it. They didn't say, what do you think about taxes? It's an either-or question. And we live in a time where so many of the culture wars and issues in culture, the way people talk about them or present them is, it's either-or. Like, that's it. 
I remember when I first moved to Memphis, I was sitting down at lunch with somebody. And this person just made the assumption in our conversation that because I was white and from the South and at the time was living in the suburbs of Memphis and I preached at a church that was predominantly white and predominantly people from the suburbs, he just assumed that I was a Republican. So in the conversation, that's how we started our conversation. You're a Republican, right? In which I said, no, I'm not. In which... Everything in him changed in the moment. It was like I was an alien in men in black or something, all right? Because his immediate response was, oh, so you're a flaming liberal. Now, here's the thing. If we live in a culture where we buy into the either-or game, it's the only two boxes we have to play with, right? And one thing I love about the Sycamore View Church is you have helped teach me and you have modeled that, hey, we know, I think you know, we know there's not just two boxes, but we also know it's the way a lot of people in our culture play the game. It's either or. It's either you want the borders to be completely closed or you want them to be fully open. It's either you are fully affirming of everything the LGBTQ community is not or you're a homophobe and you just hate people. Like it's just this either or. And the either or game is not one Jesus was interested to play in Luke chapter 20. So here's what I want to do for the next few moments. I want to talk about a little bit today about resistance with all the voices that are speaking to us. And to do this, I, want, I just want to talk about some of the challenges we face. Because you may care a lot about issues in the world and you may read about them and you may watch news channels that talk about them. And I am all for good journalism. We've got to have good, good, good journalism in the world. I know it. And I know some of you, like you could care less but you're still going to find yourselves, especially if we care about evangelism and engaging the world for Christ, we're going to find ourselves in conversations. So I want to talk about four challenges that we face as we do. And the first one is this. People spin the narrative so they can control the narrative. Right? The whole, everything going on in our world is about the best narrative. Like how can we, how can we control the narrative? So people will spin the narrative to control the narrative. So let me, let me make, let me, uh, let me make the, the, the example uh, like this. I've been a sports fanatic my whole life. And I try hard not to be a preacher who when I step up here every Sunday, the only illustrations I use are sports illustrations because I know some of you, you just don't connect with sports. I grew up in a family that we did not have, we did not have uh, cable until I was in high school. We had like three channels, that was it. And then my parents got cable and it was a game changer because I would watch SportsCenter all the time. In the 1990s, watching SportsCenter was, you would watch game highlights and you would be told the score and that was pretty much it because we didn't have social media. We didn't have phones that were, that were telling us when games were over and what the scores were. So you would watch SportsCenter to see it. And then uh, what happened in the 1990s is you had Fox Sports that began to rival ESPN. So then there were bidding wars of which network was going to be able to, you know, purchase all the agreements to, watch, to, to show NFL games or NBA or MLB or recreational activities like NASCAR and things like, I'm just joking for all my NASCAR fans in the house, all right? Just joking, making sure you're awake. But the networks, as they were competing, they knew that to get audience, like to gain more people, it had to be more than just showing highlights, now hold that thought just for a minute because Casey and I got married in 2002 and we didn't have cable for our first year of marriage. We had dial-up internet. We didn't have a cell phone. And for our, our first anniversary, we kind of set a budget of the gifts we were going to buy each other. 
So I had a gift in mind, and then one day I'm at the house, and I'm studying. I look out, and there's a Dish Network truck out in the driveway. And I went out, and I was like, I think you have the wrong house. And the guy was like, are you Josh Ross? I said, yes. He said, your wife, is. she sent me to say happy anniversary. So on our one-year anniversary, I got cable, and now I had ESPN again. Like, there's nothing my wife could ever do to top this gift. Now, this was 2003, and in 2003, a new show had just launched on ESPN because they're trying to think of new ways to engage the audience. And Michael Wilbon and Tony Kornheiser have been two of my close friends. I've never met them. They don't know me, but we've hung out a lot. And what they did is they knew, okay, hey, we've got to do more than just show highlights and the score. We need to get a panel of people who yell and scream at each other, giving you their opinion about everything that has happened in sports. So now when you turn on ESPN or Fox Sports or, or you watch like all these panels, it's like the loudest and angriest person wins. This is how Stephen A. Smith gets paid tens of millions of dollars every year. It's just get loud, have an opinion, and get paid for it. And now this doesn't just happen in sports. This is how we get all of our news, so much of it. It's let's just get people on a panel, and it's not just about arguing their point. It's destroying whoever their opponent is, and the loudest, angriest person wins. So today, it's not just what is the story. It's what the take on the story is. What is your opinion about the story? So now you have The View, and over the years you've had Glenn Beck and Rush Limbaugh where this is it. We just scream at each other, trying to argue our point. And my, I just want to encourage us, cling to the narrative of Jesus. And let the narrative of Jesus be what frames every other narrative in your life. The second one is this, fear is used to motivate. And I think we know this, fear is used to motivate. And I think we know fear is profitable and fear is fuel. Research has shown this, fear-based messaging is nearly twice as effective as messaging that talks to stir whatever other emotion it may be. Did you get that? So what this research is showing is that kind-based messaging or joy-based messaging or hope-based messaging doesn't have the same effect as fear-based messaging. If you want to gain a crowd and an audience, make them scared of something. So you see this a lot in politics, right? You see this a lot in our, in our culture. Make people afraid, and then hopefully the fear will lead them to vote a certain way. So you see this all the time. Like, hey, if you don't do this, here's what you need to be afraid of. And what you need to be afraid of is two years down the road, we may be a communist country. Two years down the road, there may be Confederate flags everywhere. Like, make people afraid, and they'll get the message. I've heard people say before, politically, those on the right... They're driven by fear, and those on the left are driven by anger, which those two emotions do not create a United States of America. Cherry Harder says this, dwelling on fear and outrage is spiritually deforming, not forming. John Gruden, the great leader, he does a lot on uh, leadership, writes a lot on leadership. In his latest book, he talks about how the brain is an antenna, almost literally the brain's an antenna with 86 million neurons, and every day we are tuning into frequencies. Most of them are either positive or negative frequencies. So the example he uses, and you've probably heard it before about the Cherokee story, you have two wolves inside of us, and the one you feed is the one that grows. So are you feeding those places in you that are hopeful and positive or that are fear-based and negative? The negative thoughts are always coming in. 
And what he talks about and writes about is when you have thoughts based on fear, they are often based on negativity. And thoughts based on fear separate you and divide you. It separates you and divides you from God and from people and from the world. So to combat it, of so much fear that's coming in front of us, to combat it the way the New Testament does, is talks about having daily practices of gratitude in your life. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 16 through 18. Give thanks in all circumstances. We give thanks. Number three is this. The truth about what is going on in our culture and world is so hard to find. Like, it, like there are days where I'm like, I just want to know what's happening with Russia and Ukraine. Where do I go just to find? I just want to hear the story. I don't need opinions. I don't need the bias. I don't need the take. Where do you go just to find truth in the world? And this is becoming very difficult. To prove to you how hard this is, and, 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 and the story I'm about to tell, I could have used a lot of different stories from the left and right politically to make this point. Here, here's how I want to do it. Some of you will remember this. In 2012, this picture appeared. And it was Mitt Romney, who's running for president in 2012, and he's about to get on a plane. And he's having his shoes shined. And in 2012, this blew up. People immediately started retweeting it and sharing it on Facebook. Like, how can he be a president for all the people when before he gets on a plane, he's having his shoes shine? Like, he's, this is about privilege. This is entitlement. And then this image, if you go to the next image, this one appeared. And it showed Mitt Romney getting his shoes shine. And President Obama, who was president at the time, President Obama, who's running for re-election, he's fist-bumping a janitor. So what was blowing up all over social media is we have one candidate. There's no way they're going to try to, they're not trying to be the president for all the people. And another one, and Obama was known to do this, like not even when cameras were on, the fist bump and high five janitors, but the whole picture and image was one is not the president for all the people, one will be. But then what happened, if you go to the next picture, is the truth was, is that Mitt Romney wasn't having his shoe shined at all was to get on the plane, they had to go through a TSA security agent who sat each person down in a chair and had the wand, and they were going over their feet, their shoes, everything, to make sure that as they got on a plane that they were safe. Here's, here's, what, here's what this point, the truth, and the truth about what is going on in our culture and world is so hard to find, is that there are times I think many of us have been guilty of sharing with friends or sharing online things that in the moment we're just driven by emotion and we share it and it may not even be true. MIT cognitive, cognitive scientist David Rand researched and found out on average people are inclined to believe false news, fake news 20% of the time. And here's why, that way too often we give credence to what we want to believe. Like we've believed in a certain ideology and now we just, it's just what we want to believe. And I don't want to use just some Jesus juke on you, but until we center ourselves in the truth of Jesus, we will be unable to find truth in anything else in the world. And the fourth thing is this, projection impacts engagement. Projection impacts engagement. And, and I, think, I think we get this. As a church, we've talked about this before. If you project 
upon a group of people, it's going to be so hard to impact and to engage them in the name of Christ. And what I mean by this is you see this happening a lot, a projection of all Democrats or all Republicans or all white people or all black people or all rich people or all poor people or all Christians or all Muslims. And this is, it's this projection. And then if we project, it will impact how we engage. But kingdom people, people who have surrendered ourselves to King Jesus, we don't take this kind of bait. We've given ourselves to a different king. We don't play the game. And daily devotion to Christ, it will take a daily yes and a daily no. What are we saying yes to? What are we saying no to? And I don't want to stand up and say, any cable, media, or cable news and all media is bad. It's not. I do want to encourage people. And I've said it before. If you spend five hours a day on cable news and three minutes a day doing your devotional to Jesus, there's no way you're living a life where your mind and your heart's aligned with who God is. And what does a practice of resistance need to look like for you in your life? That is there a half a day a week you need to disengage from all news? for the sake of your sanity? Is there a day a week that you can fast from it and delete the apps and devote your life and your heart to God? John Eldridge, in his latest book on soul care, he talks about a friend of his who had lost himself in just politics and cable news, and he decided just to quit cold turkey. And this guy came back to him and said, all the media consumption was making me a person who was stressed out, angry, depressed, and feeling rage. But the fruit of resisting was this, I have more peace and joy in my life now than I ever have before. Our first act in baptism is to renounce, to resist, and then say yes to Christ. And in daily devotion to Christ, we renounce and we resist certain things in the world so that we can say a deeper yes to Jesus. So today we're here to pray for you and pray with you. And I, there's sometimes something about coming to the table that just brings everything together. This is a place of commitment to God and a commitment together as a church. And in this moment, you'll see movement in the room. If you're a guest with us, we have six tables with the bread and the cup. And you're going to see movement. Some people will form pockets of prayer, and you'll pray together, and you'll share the bread and cup together. And I want us to remember this today. Anytime we come to take the bread and the cup, there's a focus on what Jesus has done. And there are days when we come to take the bread and the cup that there's something Jesus wants from us. And today, let's be reminded of what Jesus has done. And let's take seriously what it is Jesus wants from us as we continue to engage a world and a culture for Christ. Will you bow your heads? And 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5 is going to stay on the screen for a few moments this morning. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary... They have divine power to demolish strongholds. And we demolish arguments of every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So God, our hearts, our minds, our bodies, we give to you. 
Jesus, you live the life. You still live a life fully devoted to us. Call us into full devotion to you. For the bread and the cup that we get to take today that reminds us of this story we have given ourselves to, may this narrative be what drives us in all of life. Through Christ we pray. Amen.